Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm also the co-chair of the Joma Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really honored and excited to be here today with Dr. Shafale Karkare. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah, you are. Perfect. I should really know because I've known you for years, and it's really an honor to be able to do this episode with you. So we're going to talk about childhood seizure disorders, and as we mentioned before, it is a huge, vast topic, but we're going to try to go for the more common um, forms of seizures that we see through the ages by age, starting with infancy. But first, I'm going to introduce you. Dr. Karkari is the director of the Pediatric Epilepsy Center at the Cohen Children's Medical Center. She is board certified in epilepsy, child neurology, and pediatrics. She completed her training from Children's Hospital of Michigan, University of Michigan, and New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. Before joining Northwell, where she is now, Dr. Kakari was the director of pediatric epilepsy surgery program at Cosair Children's Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, where she successfully established a pediatric surgical program and streamlined complex diagnostic testing that was previously not available in the region. She served on the Professional Advisory Committee of the Epilepsy Foundation of Kentuckiana and continues to serve on the advisory board of Epic Long Island, which I now know stands for Exceptional Partners in Care Long Island. Dr. Kokari is the principal co-investigator in the Human Epilepsy Project 3 trial. You've authored book chapters, have major multiple publications and presentations on pediatric epilepsy. She is an assistant professor at the Hofstra University Medical School and the program director for child neurology residency. Wow, thank you so much for doing this with me. I am honored and really excited to be doing this important topic. So thank you so much. And I'm gonna start by asking just to define what's a seizure. Right. Let me first start by saying thank you for this opportunity and your lovely work for over years with all my patients and other patients. I think it's a very important work that a pediatrician does being the primary contact person and just cannot be done without. So let's start with the basics. So what is a seizure? So all of us know there are billions of neurons in our brain and they're constantly firing. If this firing goes awry and there is a lot of excessive firing instead of just the normal expected firing, that can cause seizures. And outwardly, those seizures can look in a very different type of manifestations based on where they are originating from. By the way, the word seizure comes from the old belief that when somebody is having a seizure, they're being seized by a spirit. Of course, that's not what we think about seizures any longer. But uh, that's where that word comes from. Right, or the word fit, right? They say they're having yeah, fit or convulsions, epileptic feet. And people sometimes get surprised and they say, oh, so my child has epilepsy. I thought they had seizure disorder. So these are same, one and the same. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has more than two unprovoked seizures, so not seizures caused by a head injury or by a fever, but unprovoked seizures, if they have two of them, then that, that is definition of epilepsy or also called seizure disorder. Excellent definition. Thank you. So let's start with infancy. And I'd like to look more at the more common things we see. 
So what would you see in a baby that could be a seizure? And what would you see that might, people might think is a seizure that's not? I'm thinking specifically of one thing. I'm prompting you. <laughs> so no, actually, seizures can start at any age, like you mm-hmm. said, even starting intrauterine for some people, but that is not very common. So let's stick to common things. Mm -hmm. So common things would be starting in neonatal period. So some children will have what we what we used to call fifth day fits. And here, you know, the doctors are more concerned than the family members, because family members know, an aunt or a a grandma is going to tell us that, oh, no, this is what my child did. And his father did, because these are seizures that are also called benign familial neonatal convulsions. They happen between five to seven days of age. The baby may have a focal seizure, may require to be on medication. But the good news is now we know what exactly this is caused by. It is an autosomal dominant condition. So every generation, there may be a person that may have this episode when they are a young baby, and then they grow out of it. That's why the term benign. But it is called by, caused by a mutation in a potassium channel called KCNQ2 mutation. And these children typically do pretty well. They require medicine for the first year of life. And then we usually are able to take them off. But sometimes they may have some developmental issues. But very commonly, newborns, even little things, because they are so little, Mm -hmm. any little thing off with their glucose, hypo or hyperglycemia or high or low glucose level, high or low sodium level, high or low magnesium and calcium levels, Endocrine disturbances, all of those things can cause seizures, but they don't typically go on to be epileptic seizures. Mm. They are usually metabolic disturbances that can cause a few seizures in the neonatal ICU and they get treated. Preemie babies or babies that have difficulty transitioning from intrauterine life because they didn't get enough oxygen during birth or with other conditions, they may have seizures from lack of oxygen or hypoxia to the brain, usually starts on the second day of life. But what is very common, since we are going to talk about common things today for outpatients, is what we would would, would look like a seizure and scares a lot of first-time moms. And to be very honest, I was very scared when my daughter did it now 20 years ago because it looks scary. (laughs) So the baby can be asleep, deeply asleep, and then one limb jerks Mm -hmm. and then the other hand jerks and the leg jerks. And this can continue for several minutes and it can look scary. But this is very common and it's called benign neonatal myoclonus of infancy or sleep myoclonus of infancy and typically happens in first four weeks of life and tends to get better over the next couple of months. And it's because of the just the immaturity of the newborn's brain, the myelination and the maturation. But the trick to kind of tell them apart is that it only happens when they're deeply asleep. So if a mother wants to kind of distinguish the two, try to wake up the baby If they're doing it when they're completely fully awake, it could be something more, could be a different type of seizure. Mm -hmm. Is it also true that if you hold the baby's hand, they stop moving if they have this condition or not? Not always, but yes, if they are jittery, jitteriness is basically just tremulousness and not a twitch, but more just a tremor. Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes holding them down or wrapping them, it will stop. But I think the state is very important. If they continue to have those jerks while they're completely awake looking at you, that probably is not sleep myoclonus because Mm -hmm. as the name suggests, it happens in sleep. But the sleep myoclonus, that's not a form of epilepsy. 
it is not an epileptic disorder it is just many and babies do a lot of things that will scare first time moms mm. as you know there are they can have horizontal eye movements they can sleep with their eyes open their breathing may be periodic and all of that can trick you into thinking they may be having seizures but no these are these are not seizure types Right, and as a tip from a pediatrician, take a video of it. We're not here. I have to make another disclaimer. We're not here for medical advice, only for educational purposes. But it's a good tip to videotape it so your pediatrician can see, or even the neurologist. If you know, I mean, I presume sometimes you have to send the baby to a neurologist, even with a benign condition like myoclonus. Sometimes, because you may not know. Exactly, and sometimes it is exaggerated, and mm-hmm. you just want to be sure. And many times it's pretty easy to get an EEG if necessary. Uh, and record it, and kind of that gives the mother a bit of comfort, knowing that it's nothing serious is going on. Right. So, yeah, just but the video helps quite a bit for any events that mm-hmm. come and go. Because by the time they get to my office, there is nothing going on. The baby is right. cute and smiling, and yeah, the video helps. Right. I mean, and that's also even with true seizure disorders because they're intermittent. Right. You wouldn't necessarily see them all the time. Absolutely. So, what are we talked about one? Seizure mimic. What are some other mimics of seizures? And at this point, uh, I'll let you go to other ages, even though I want to come back to go by age. (laughs) So, you know, babies, when they get a little bit older, so outside the first neonatal period, when they're infants, they can do something called shuddering spells. Mm -hmm. And this happens in some babies more than others and happens typically when they're sitting up in a high chair their whole body must just go from head to bottom, uh, head to toe in a kind of a quick shiver or a tremor. And they are usually making eye contact still quite alert, not having any change of awareness or drooling or twitching. They don't get tired after. They just go back to what they're doing. But it can look a little bit concerning to the mother. And so these are shuddering spells. They're not seizures. Again, babies will grow out of them uh, by first year of life. At the latest, by 18 months of age, they will usually start getting much better. And there is some correlation with essential tremors in the family. So there are other family members that have essential tremors. It's more likely to see these shuddering episodes. But they are not seizures. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a bit older child may start doing things that, you know, sometimes particularly in girls. And this I have even seen as ER consult. So the girls can actually, you know, maybe uh, put their legs together, kind of squeeze them together, grunt, look red, sweat in the face, and then they're still making eye contact. There is nothing shaky or anything going on. They may look like they are in pain, but then there is, they usually stop doing it when they are observed or they are disturbed from that episode. And this is called Mm self-stimulative behavior of childhood. And again, it is something that parents come in with a lot of anxiety. And when it is, this is told to them, most of them have observed some part of it. And they said, yeah, it does feel like it is something that they may be deriving some sensory uh, stimulation mm-hmm. from. And I try to tell the parents because sometimes, you know, some family members take offense to that. They say, no, my child is not seeking pleasure. They are not doing self-stimulation. So we kind of tell them this is just like sucking thumb. Right. It is stereotypic behavior. And also children can do flapping, hand flapping. So they may get excited when they see a toy or when they're in a tub and they can go like this. Right. And so that can, again, some, some people may get concerned if that's a seizure. And also people these days go first thing to Google, Dr. Google. Right. And it's <laughs> autism. <laughs> 
<laughs> they put in stereotypy first thing they say is autism but oh. i just want to make sure that people understand that there are children that will have stereotypies without having autism and they will usually get better and even if they don't they are not seizures they're not causing the child any harm and we typically will not want to do anything with this child but to see and assure reassure the parent absolutely so let's go back in time a little bit and talk about febrile seizures because that's another really common scenario and we we also have to talk and make sure it's crystal clear because i spent all day doing that that febrile seizures aren't caused by the fever and that people shouldn't be afraid that their child if they have too high a fever will get a seizure if we can just do that today what we've done a lot <laughs> no this is very important because febrile seizures as you know are very very common and they can be very scary for parents to watch but exactly like you said i tell parents it's not like you are you know putting the brain on a stub and slowly raising the temperature and a certain temperature is raised and there goes a seizure no it's not the temperature uh, it can sometimes be the rate of rise of temperature mm-hmm. so some articles do suggest that if the fever very quickly rises the chance of a febrile seizure is high but i have seen and it is documented in literature several seizure patients can have the febrile seizure as the first manifestation of that fever or of that illness that causes it as well as just an illness without mm-hmm. a fever or even gastroenteritis particularly in asian population really? can provoke a seizure yes and that is what we call convulsion associated with acute gastroenteritis or cag typical in asian population uh, and again acts exactly like febrile seizure considered a provoked seizure not an epilepsy mm-hmm. and uh, you know many years ago these were being treated by phenobarbital uh, which is a medicine that can lower iq with chronic use mm-hmm. and of course there are children that would need it but for things like febrile seizures which are not epileptic uh, that is what was being done routinely and we have stopped doing it thankfully we do not put this these type of children on any seizure medicines we just tell the family to again not go super crazy about giving them excessive amounts of tylenol or ibuprofen but using appropriate amounts of antipyretics opening the child up and kind of making sure they're not overheated sponging them down with lukewarm uh, cloth uh, wet cloth or sponge and uh, if the seizure happens be prepared know what to do don't panic and only thing with febrile seizures that is sometimes linked with future epilepsy is a prolonged febrile seizure febrile mm. status epilepticus so if a febrile seizure goes too long and again that's an area of hot debate and still not solved after mm. years of research but there is a debate about whether a very prolonged febrile seizure could eventually then cause scarring in the deeper part of the brain called mesial temporal sclerosis which as an adult the child will then may start having temporal lobe epilepsy but again it's such a kind of the ek phenomenon maybe they have something wrong with their temporal lobes to begin with and that's why they have such a long seizure because typical febrile seizures what we call simple febrile seizures usually last less than 10 minutes or 15 minutes depending on the literature you would look at most are actually 2 to 3 minutes right. honestly yeah Uh, so again if there is a very prolonged febrile seizure that's not a situation that's the most desirable so if that's happening we do recommend using a rectal medication to stop the seizure in a child older than 2 years of age because under 2 it's not fda approved to use rectal diazepam uh, only if the seizure goes beyond 5 minutes but apart from that these febrile seizures are tricky in a way because mm. you know they usually will happen once and then they may not happen 
for 70% of people that get the first seizure. But one third of people, one third of children will have a second febrile seizure. Now, once you have had a second febrile seizure, the chance you are going to have a third febrile seizure goes up to 50%. Mm-hmm. So 50% of children will have a third. And the more you get, more you get. So I have followed children that have had 15, 20 febrile seizures from that typical age of six months to four years. And again, that's not a strong, strict cutoff. You may be a little one month shy or you may be four and a half and you may still have a febrile seizure. But what is very important in this case is the family history. So if you have nobody in your family with a febrile seizure and you're older, then this is, there is a chance that this is really not a febrile seizure. And it's actually an epileptic seizure, but the first seizure was provoked by fever, which Mm -hmm. happens a lot. And then families do get upset because they get told in the ER, we don't need any workup. This is common, go home. And, but slowly the febrile seizures evolve into afebrile seizures and it becomes clear the first one wasn't febrile to begin with. So what seizures would deserve a workup from the first time? Any afebrile seizures, if the child was in a completely healthy state of uh, being and they were playful and otherwise not acting sick, no fever, no temperature, and they had a, febri- they had a seizure, that would definitely warrant workup, but also what we call complex febrile seizures. So if a seizure that goes beyond 10 minutes, or if a seizure that is very focal, which means there is eye deviation to one side, head going to one side, one hand extending or shaking, anything on either right or left side of face or body. If that is present, then sometimes there is a need for doing the workup unless everybody in the family has febrile seizures and this child has had febrile seizures in the past. But complex febrile seizures do definitely need some workup. Mm-hmm. And what would that workup be? Typically an EEG in, an, uh, in a time period where the child is not sick. Because if the child is sick, you will see some spikes. You may even catch on video EEG a febrile seizure. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that they have a tendency towards seizures, spontaneous seizures, which is what epilepsy is. So if you have this child without any fever in a normal health state of health and you do an EEG and it shows you spikes, which basically are uh, you know, normal EEG brain waves are kind of round and soft and uh, squiggly. But if it becomes very sharp, something that would hurt you if you were to sit on it, uh, then that is an indication that a bunch of neurons are firing too much. And that spike kind of is like a spark. Uh, so it's not the seizure. Uh, it's not the fire, but it probably is where the fire comes from. Mm. Uh, so if we see spikes in a state when there is no sickness going on, that raises our concern that maybe this child actually has epilepsy and not recurrent febrile seizures. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit because you talked a little bit about focality and I wanted to be crystal clear what kind of seizure you're talking about and also what other kinds because there are so many different types. Yes, there are. Into the types. <laughs> and uh, to make things more complicated for everybody, uh, the International League Against Epilepsy changed the terminology on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what we used to call, you know, complex partial seizure is no longer called that. But in any way, I'm going to make it very simple. I'm going to say there are two big buckets. So if there is just a part of your brain that is giving rise to the seizures, these are called focal, which we used to call partial, focal seizures. And the focal seizures, if the person is completely aware, the child is completely aware and can recall and retail all the whole story, then that is what we call a focal seizure with, without impaired awareness or what we used to call simple partial. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have a seizure that is with, you know, just one part of the brain is giving you the seizure, but you are confused, 
that's what a focal impaired aware seizure is so those are the focal seizures coming from one part of the brain generalized seizures are seizures where your entire brain is firing excessively at the same time now that excessive firing could re- result into full blown grand mal seizure it can result into just tonic stiffening it can result into a myoclonic jerk it can result into just staring with eye roll eyelids rolling up so again different types of outward manifestations but when you look at where the seizure is coming from two big buckets focal and generalized mm. so are there some groups of children who are more at risk for seizures mixed no are there some groups of children oh, who are more at risk more at risk right absolutely yes so uh, children that are born prematurely mm. or have hemorrhage in their brain or children that don't transition well uh, from intrauterine to extrauterine life like they may have had some lack of oxygen things of that nature they are more likely to develop infantile spasms a serious type of seizures when they are a bit older uh, or if the child from the get go before even the first seizure starts has something off with their development either their head size isn't growing too well they have what we call microcephaly or small head or they are low tone or hypotonic or stiff so that just tells you that the brain is not functioning properly and seizures is just another way that that brain may not be functioning properly so children with neurodevelopmental disabilities are at a higher risk of having seizures right. but before you move on from that i just want to mention you mentioned infantile spasms and that really didn't it's such a specific kind of seizure it might be worth giving a few minutes of explaining what it looks like and why it can be confused by parents for not being a seizure at all absolutely that's very important because infantile spasms are also age limited so typically they would happen anywhere between 4 months to 2 years of life more typical to 4 to 8 months of life and they may not look like seizures and first time parents may not realize that those are seizures so the spasms are the typical attacks or salam attacks that are described are where the child will suddenly do a kind of jack knife posturing mm-hmm. head and neck goes down arms come up legs come up and the child cries and that usually happens not as a single episode but as a cluster of episodes but it may not be flexion it may be extension and arms going out like a startle and baby startle particularly if there is a loud noise or they are being placed on a cold changing table they will do a little startle that's totally normal that's not a spasm but if it continues to happen persistently as a cluster when they are going to sleep or waking up from sleep and typically they don't like that movement and they cry then that is concerning for spasms but over the years i have seen spasms being missed even by experienced people because they do look like either the child is just excessively startling mm. or they are have their teething or they are having intersusception so they come to the er but neurology doesn't get called because they think the child is drawing the legs up and crying mm. there is something going on in their stomach and they get a whole gi workup but they don't get a neurological workup mm. and particularly if the child doesn't have any risk factors it becomes you know kind of get can get be missed for a period of time right and within that category when you say risk factors it's important to say that a certain percentage of these kids do not have any underlying problems and correct me if i'm wrong but this is the category that will often do the best absolutely right and the old classification we called them idiopathic mm-hmm. and i would joke with the parents saying idiopathic is just a way of telling you that your doctor is an idiot <laughs> we don't know <laughs> that's what i think said radha giri karan <laughs> dr giri <laughs> yeah dr giri right <laughs> he's so quoted to this day 
<laughs> yeah it's like a way of saying i don't know why your child is having a seizure but also in neurology very true statement is that if i know probably that's not good for the child so if there is no reason there is a better chance that the child is going to do better than having a known abnormality uh, that causes this but you are absolutely right there is a percentage of children it's not as common as in children that already have brain hemorrhage or stroke or microcephaly but there there are children that are completely normal that develop spasms and now that we are looking more and more into genetics of epilepsy they're probably not fully normal they may have an underlying genetic etiology but again if they're diagnosed quickly and treated aggressively they will do very well and will stop having spasms and develop normally but most children with spasms and the reason why it needs to be quickly brought to the attention of the doctors is that if you don't treat them and they go untreated for a while uh it can cause developmental regression and the outcomes are not the best and that's not because of just the quick spasm but it's more because of the interictal or in between the spasms abnormal eeg waves that are called hypsarrhythmia a greek word that means basically chaos mm-hmm. the brain waves are fully chaotic they are not looking normal at all they don't look awake and asleep they just look spikes everywhere slowing everywhere that brain isn't processing anything and very interestingly i have had very astute parents that came to me even before the first spasm or on the day of the first spasm and they said you know what something is off with my child mm-hmm. people may think that i'm crazy but i my child isn't making as good as an eye contact with me as they used to mm-hmm. so there seems to be a regression of the occipital and visual kind of cortex there to kind of have that they stop smiling they kind of become almost autism like they stop having the interaction and that can remain permanent if it the based on the underlying condition but also if they're not treated in time right and i think we're going to go into the treatment but there are you know very specific therapies there is right a intense steroid protocol there are some other medications um i don't know which is first line but you know it's it's not for this podcast but it's important to know that there are treatments for this and i think you know no matter what you think the child's prognosis is you know it will be important to try to treat it early to maximize correct these are not routine seizure medicines these are specific treatments and that's why early diagnosis and proper treatment is important right so i'm going to segue right into another disorder that i forgot until we started talking about infantile spasms which is landau-kleffner mm-hmm. so we've actually i've actually seen that mm-hmm. um and it's actually dr giri who helped make the diagnosis so i'm going to let you explain what landau-kleffner is and it's another disorder where you need to treat it to prevent regression correct so landau kleffner syndrome or acquired epileptic aphasia is a condition that happens a little bit in older children and when this condition first got diagnosed it caused a lot of confusion because you know there is something called autistic regression where children with on the autism spectrum around 18 months of life will lose the language that they had they will lose all the social skills if they had developed any and that's why the whole association with mmr came into picture where people said ah it was going fine till 18 months of course it was not the vaccine but 18 months is when children have autistic regression and stop talking what we are talking about are not children with autism these are children that are otherwise normal developing normally and then they start almost acting deaf they have auditory agnosia they if you are talking to them they act as if you haven't you they don't understand you and then they may even start losing language over a short or a long period of time seizures may or may not be very frequent eeg may show spikes or it may show a condition called 
continuous spiking in sleep so eses or electrical status epilepticus of sleep but it is a rare condition actually but we do want to rule it out even in children with autism if they regress a child with autism should continue to progress if there is regression we do need to look into if there is something going on and obtain an eeg including sleep to see if something is going on there because like you said again the treatments for the, some of these conditions are not routine seizure medicines but are more you know autoimmune targeted with steroids ivig high dose diazepam so again a rare condition but a condition that deserves treatment very quickly yes we accidentally because you came in as the third person have a mm. 40 minute time limit so oh. we're going to make this shorter and have to do part 2 <laughs> Oh my. All right, that never happened to me before. Like I said, I've never done a, a podcast with one person is two. Okay. Um, you know what? Let's 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 promise, you know, God willing to do part 2, but just talk a little bit about who else gets seizures. Um we talked a little bit about children with more devastating or more serious neurodevelopmental problems, but I think we have to also acknowledge um some other categories like children with ADHD and autism because this is pretty common correct and so children with autism or pervasive developmental disorder do tend to have a higher risk of seizures so one third of children with autism tend to have seizures and another one third can have abnormal eegs without seizures mm-hmm. as you know children with autism can do a lot of staring behaviors jerking behaviors abnormal kind of stereotypic behaviors so it is difficult to distinguish what is what is it a seizure or is it an related behavior related to the autism but it is important also to not overtreat certain things because having spikes on an eeg does not equate epilepsy right. so it really has to be assessed in a completely uh, comprehensive manner to see what's going on there as far as are there truly seizures going on and again children with autism have a lot of sensory issues they may not allow eegs and somebody to touch their head to get those studies and it becomes challenging so again videos of the events are very useful Mm-hmm. And also back to you talked briefly about staring spells. So it's very common for you know children who have workups for ADHD to mm-hmm. get evaluated for those what used to be called absence seizures which they've probably renamed to something else, right? They're still absence seizures fortunately. <laughs> yes, but it is very common for children to stare off as well and it could be a few things. It could be the, the typical childhood absence epilepsy. start somewhere around you i would say anybody older than 4 would be considered typical age for childhood absence epilepsy and those are very brief quick seizures and uh, interestingly people have diagnosed it more after the covid pandemic because they are in close quarters with their children mm-hmm. or i've had parents tell me that they went on a vacation and that's the first time they noticed that the child was doing it because they weren't really spending all that time sitting face to face with their child with everybody's busy schedules and they felt really guilty about it but again these are very brief seizures the child may just stop what they're doing and just blink their eyes quickly may may do a little bit of a head drop but apart from that there is no outward manifestation and then they go quickly right back to doing whatever they are doing and an office trick we neurologists use is asking them to blow on a piece of paper uh, through their mouth and hyperventilation and they will actually do that right there yeah. in the office and come back to being to blowing on the piece of the paper again and i typically say something very funny like purple banana or a pink elephant as they're having that episode 
Because sometimes parents will say, why do I need to treat it? It's so brief. It's a couple of seconds. Why should I treat it? But usually the child only remembers the purple or the banana. They don't wow. remember the whole thing. And that's kind of an example right there in the patient's presence, parent's presence that this is happening 5,200 times a day or more. And your child may be missing out on certain things. Or if they're crossing the street or riding their bike, there could be a chance of injury. So even if this is a self-limited epilepsy, most children will grow out of it. And there are very good medications available to treat it. I think it is a good idea is to treat these seizures and not let them go untreated. Absolutely. I hope we have enough time to talk about benign focal epilepsy of childhood because that's another not uncommon one. Yes. And that happens in a bit of an older child, so six years and above. And the typical story with this seizure is that the child is by this age sleeping in their own bedroom and the parents get alerted to the child making some guttural sounds uh, as if there is a lot of saliva in their um, in their throat. And when they walk in, the child may even be making eye contact with them in the beginning. Or they may find a child in a full-blown seizure episode. But typically, there is a lot of mouth and uh, salivation and mouth twisting and turning. And it could be just one side or both sides of the body. But it is always, almost always in sleep uh, or on a day when they haven't slept well the night before. So it's very strongly related to sleep. And the EEG shows a very typical focal pattern just in the central temporal regions, the spikes that are always worse when they fall asleep or get drowsy. So again, this is a very, what we used to call benign. And again, they don't want us to use that word, but it is in my mind still very benign mm-hmm. epilepsy because 90% children grow out of it by the age, uh, by the time they're pubertal. But the reason why it's not fully benign is that they do have some processing issues, mm-hmm. some set of specific neuropsych abnormalities uh, that are present in these patients. So even before they start having seizures and get put on medicine, and then of course, medicine gets blamed for everything, but they, they usually will have focus issues, attention issues, not doing well in math, they're not doing well in reading. Uh, but apart from that, overall, in a big picture, they're benign, they stop having seizures, when they get older. Mm, and they don't usually become, they usually focal, like you described, not usually the generalized, which are way more scary. Correct. They are. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to start talking about how to evaluate for seizures. Um, I think it's important because I think people think, okay, you have an EEG and if the EEG is normal, you don't have seizures. Right. So the mainstay of the diagnosis is EEG, but EEG comes in different kinds. So if you have a routine EEG while awake, just 20, 30 minutes, you can miss very important information. So either an extended EEG or a sleep deprived EEG or an overnight EEG would be definitely better. And the routine EEG has a yield of only one third of cases showing Mm. positive findings after a seizure. Closer to the seizure you have the EEG, higher the chances that it will pick something up. But it's likely that you will not pick up anything. And that's why if you see our reports, we always say that a normal EEG doesn't rule out the diagnosis of epilepsy. And in that case, we'll proceed with longer EEGs, which can be at home, ambulatory EEGs, or they can be in the hospital along with video uh, camera as well. And there are two things that we are looking for with the longer recordings. We are trying to capture the event in question, if it's happening daily or frequently enough. And the second thing we are trying to look for is any interictal, which means in between episode type of abnormalities, which take the form of slowing on one side of the brain or spikes, which are sharp brain waves instead of round wiggly brain waves, 
uh, in a particular part of the brain or entire brain. And we are looking at the sleep because also many times these interictal abnormalities or spikes show up only in sleep. So you will miss your diagnosis if you only capture a weak EEG. Now, when you say interictal um, abnormalities, are these like pre-seizures or a seizure predilection? What does that mean? Because it's not seizure activity. It is not seizure activity. What it is trying to tell us is that that part of the brain is more excitable or Mm -hmm. irritable than a normal state of brain excitability. And it's almost, you can think of it as like sparks. It's not the fire, but it's the sparks. Mm -hmm. Most of the times they are going out on their own, but they are probably, if there is an area in your backyard where it's the wire is sparking, probably that's where your fire started. So it's it's kind of tells us that there could be a potential epileptogenicity or a potential to have seizures from that part of the brain. But spikes are not same as seizures and we don't take spikes as the only reason to start medication. Right. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And I want to bring back what we talked about earlier, which is that you can have abnormalities on the EEG that is not the same as a seizure and is not the same as um, a predilection for seizures, the abnormality you talked about, like the slowing, um, that you see more often with kids um, on the spectrum. I think we you talked about that see. earlier. Right. And it's it's. I think that that's unclear. Am I correct in terms of what correct. that means? So sometimes if there is a diffuse slowing in all channels of the brain and the brain is just not generating adequately fast brain waves per second, Uh, that can be just a sign that there is something wrong with the brain's functioning. If it is very rhythmic slowing, it kind of looks only to be in one side of the brain. It could be related to something in the area of that, that area of the brain. So we would typically recommend getting a brain MRI. And sometimes it is very nonspecific and Mm -hmm. it may be there on one EEG and it may not be there on the next one. Right. And we're not sure what some of those mean. Right. I mean, Correct. we're going to get to what, you know, you definitely don't medicate for pre-seizures or for funny EEGs. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I just want to go back a minute and talk about single EEG because you talked about it, you know, picking up only about a third of seizures. Can you increase that yield by doing anything? So we always on our EEGs as a routine, we will do two tests, which are mm-hmm. called hyperventilation. If the child is cooperative enough, we ask them to breathe fast through their mouth, either blow on a pinwheel or on a piece of paper. Uh, for about three minutes and we also uh, do a series of photic stimulation which is series of flashes uh, that are stimulate that are targeted on the eyes and eyes can be closed they don't have to be open Mm -hmm. but that can sometimes trigger some abnormal EEG activity Mm -hmm. sometimes if we feel it is safe enough we will ask the parents to sleep deprive the child so even if they may not sleep they at least are drowsy and that can bring out some abnormalities so I'll tell them to not let the child go to bed at their regular bedtime and not let them fall asleep on the way here. So that way we can turn the lights off and hopefully they will at least become drowsy if they don't sleep. Mm-hmm. Do you get a different yield from ambulatory EEG or overnight? Because again, like even with all that work, you're still missing a significant percentage of seizures on a single EEG. Correct. And that has to do with the duration of the EEG. So there are several studies that have looked at what's the time point after the study starting to the first abnormality showing up. And sometimes it can be as long as seven hours. So that's why having a longer sample gives you more idea about whether there is an abnormality truly there or not. And like I said before, you can capture an event because it's a longer study and you can see the whole sleep overnight 
what and people many times get confused with it think 24 hours means it has to be by the clock 24 hours mm-hmm. ambulatory eeg it doesn't mean that it means that we want a large chunk of awake mm-hmm. uh, and a large proportion of the child being asleep and that's good enough doesn't have to be 24 hours by the clock are there greater advantages to doing it in the hospital as opposed to at home because i'm thinking as a parent why on earth would i want my kid in the hospital when they could be home Right. So uh, sometimes if the child is uncooperative and they're going to try to rip off the leads frequently, mm-hmm. and th- that that may be one reason why we would want to bring somebody in the hospital. Or if we are going to make medication adjustments and changes or hold a small do- medication, small proportion of it in at our hospital at Cohen Children's, we don't hold medication unless in a select case, unless they are in a very monitored setting in a neuroscience unit or in an ICU. So for some of those types of cases where the patient is already on seizure medicines and we are withdrawing them or changing them, we want for the reason of safety, we want the children to be in the hospital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But otherwise, there is really no reason why the child needs to be in the hospital. So we are seeing the turn into more of video ambulatories and ambulatory EEGs than video EEGs. Mm-hmm. last several years and and how what kind of yield do you get on the ambulatory and overnight so ambulatory and overnight uh, it certainly has higher yield there may not be necessarily numbers exactly to quantify that but certainly having a sleep i would say that if i have a completely normal 48 hour eeg the chances that it is a generalized epilepsy are very very low focal epilepsies like frontal lobe epilepsies that have a very deep focus can still evade you and you can still have a normal long EEG, but the uh, chances that it is an epileptic pro- process going on gets really low if you don't see anything in sight, no spikes, no slowing, completely normal study for one or two nights. The chances are not zero, but they're close right. to it. Right. I mean, I think the less frequent the seizures are, the more likely you'll get a prolonged period that's normal, even in the setting of, of epilepsy. The reason I'm saying this has happened to my own daughter. So we yeah. had to like strip her of her medication and keep her up an entire night in a unit, you know, to, to trigger abnormalities and a seizure. Right. I'm happy not to have triggered the seizure, but we needed to see what was going on. And we couldn't have done that at home. Mm-hmm. She's also had ambulatory, which are so much nicer, honestly. <laughs> okay. So moving on to who needs medication, you know, we, we mentioned that we're not going to treat abnormal EEG. What, what do we treat? What, what is the indications? So again, going back to the example of sparks that we were talking about, you can think of it somebody lighting matches and throwing them on the floor, forest floor or wooded floor. And most of the times they are extinguishing it themselves, but sometimes they are catching on fire. So what the medications do is they don't stop the sparks from being generated periodically. They just, it's like taking a water hose and spraying the floor So it's less likely to catch on fire. So the sparks or the process of epileptogenicity, it continues based on what type of epilepsy it is. All the medications are doing is making it less likely that an actual seizure will happen. They curtail the spread of that epileptic activity to larger areas that cause symptoms. The spikes will continue. Sometimes some medications will even wipe out spikes clean of your EEG. But the underlying potential uh, If you grow out of it, then that's a different story. But medicines don't necessarily change that. But it's very important in certain cases uh, to think of why we are treating. Why would we want to put a chemical in your child's body? So there are several reasons for it. 
First is that long seizures, prolonged seizures are not good for your brain. And there are several studies showing convulsive seizures are very bad if they are prolonged. But even focal seizures where you don't fully lose, lose consciousness and you don't convulse. If they are happening frequently enough, it's not good for the long-term cognitive potential, at least in animal studies and more, like, and more than likely even in humans. And also we think of epileptic networks as something that you don't want to let it continue because it can then get uh, kindled in other mm-hmm. parts of the brain. And that epileptogenic activity, if it continues to remain unchecked, can get worse over a period of time. We have realized over a number of years now that epilepsy is not a static illness. It's a progressive illness. Mm -hmm. So as time goes, we know that if epilepsy surgery is done later after 10 years of being having frequent seizures, the outcome is not as good as trying to get take care of the problem sooner. So we know the longer the epileptic networks stay unchecked, harder it is for that epilepsy to resolve. So that's one reason. And the second reason is practical, that you don't want your child to have a seizure, have a fracture, have an injury, a tongue bite. A child may get very nervous thinking, you know, the unpredictability part Mm -hmm. of the seizures is the worst. Like, when am I going to have a seizure? Is it today? Is it going to happen in the class? So safety is another thing. And uh, of course, there are there can be some untoward outcomes uh, in patients with epilepsy, uh, like pseudeps. So uh, that is another reason why even in benign epilepsies, I tend to use medications these days as the data has changed around that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to make a point, though, that we're not talking about febrile seizures because we talked about them earlier. And, and they I are think- not epilepsy, so we right. don't need to treat them. Right. People shouldn't be afraid. People are always afraid their kid's going to have a fever and the fever is going to melt their brain and give them seizures. And first of all, if you don't have the predilection to febrile seizures, a high fever will not give you one. Right. And we talked about this earlier, but I just don't want people to hear this and think, oh my gosh, my, my kid has a seizure disorder and they need to, to be on medication so the seizures won't, won't hurt their brain. And that is a completely different category. Correct. Okay. So how well do the medications control seizures? And again, here we're going to talk, we're, we're lumping seizure, you know, epilepsy or seizure disorders all into one category, which is really unfair. Um, there are some disorders that are super easy to control and, and others that are not. Correct. And like you correctly said, if there is a relatively what we would in the past term a benign epileptic syndrome, like absent seizures or juvenile myoclonic epilepsy or benign Rolandic epilepsy, which are common but relatively milder seizure types, the first medication will control them in more than 70% of cases. But there is a subset, one-third of children with epilepsy, that will not respond to an appropriately chosen medication. So again, if you are not choosing the right type of medicine for that type of epilepsy, that's not a medication failure. Or if you take one dose and you have a skin rash, that's not a failure, that's intolerance of the medication. It's a correct medicine, you have been on the correct dose, and you're still having seizures. That's the failure of a medication. And if that happens uh, for one medication, the chance that you're going to be well controlled by addition of a second medication is much, much smaller. And if you fail a second medication, then the chance that medications are going to control the epilepsy is very small, 5 to 10%. You can find a third or fourth or fifth medication sometimes that will control your seizures, But by definition, you are in that subgroup of children that it may be difficult to control that type of epilepsy or what we would call medically refractory epilepsy. So epilepsy is a very big bag of things. And there are most, the bottom line is 
70 to 80 percent of children will do extremely well on the first medicine that is chosen. They typically these days don't have many side effects to the newer side seizure medications and they grow out. But then there are subgroups where the epilepsy doesn't get better as time goes. It may get worse and you may continue to fail medications. But they're all epilepsy patients. So that's why it becomes so difficult when parents talk to each other. They feel like it's not even the same disease. And that's exactly right. right. It's not right. the same disease. Apples to oranges here. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and we're not going to get into the different subtypes of, of seizures, but you made a point I just want to emphasize that if the medication isn't working, you know, you might want to make sure that the type of epilepsy has been correctly diagnosed. Correct. That's very important because there are medications that can actually not only not work, but worsen right. if they are inappropriately chosen. So there are medications uh, that can worsen some generalized epilepsies if the epilepsy is actually not not the type of epilepsy that we should be using that medicine for. Or now with some genetic epilepsies, uh, for example, a condition called Dravet syndrome, very rare condition, but it's a mutation in the sodium channel. And if you use a medication that acts on the sodium channel, you may actually worsen the condition and you will have more epilepsy, uh, more seizures and more progression of your cognitive deficits over a period of time. So it is important that you are using either a broad spectrum umbrella type of medicine that works in most cases and doesn't worsen a particular condition. But uh, that's why it's important. That's that's where the art of epilepsy medicine mm-hmm. comes in. Mm-hmm. And there are epilepsy centers where you can go to. I mean, there's, you know, different levels, I believe, of epilepsy centers. Am I correct? That is correct. So National Association of Epilepsy Centers does a very thorough auditing of these centers. And so we submit a lot of our EEG reports, MRI reports, uh, de-identified, obviously, and numbers of how many are we seeing? Because, you know, more you do of this type of care, better you get at it. So uh, there are levels of epilepsy care and level four is the highest level. So Cohen Children's Medical Center is a level four NAEC, which that means is we provide care not only in medical management of epilepsy, but also surgical, ketogenic diet and neurostimulation like vagus nerve and responsive neurostimulation. Yeah, I want to get to those because, you know, we said before that once, you know, you're in that refractory epilepsy category, you've got diminishing returns on medication. So what what other treatments are being used when you're talking about refractory that are not medication? Right. So treatable? I think what what is important for people to understand is that if the child has failed a couple of medications, we need to really define what this epilepsy is. Is it secondary to a structural problem? Then we need to have a really good brain MRI, three Tesla MRI with epilepsy protocol. And if that is normal and we don't have our answer, there are other tests that we go to, like PET scan of the brain, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's the function of the brain that we are looking at. Or we sometimes will do a MEG scan, magnetoencephalography scan. Mm -hmm. So there are different imaging techniques and we are trying to find out, is there a structural cause for this epilepsy? We want to send out genetic panels that look at more than 180 or sometimes even more than hundreds of genes that cause epilepsy. And sometimes that will come out as a positive finding and as a cause of the epilepsy itself. I have a, so, I have a, I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you, but I have a question for you about the genetic testing because I'm wondering, because you said before that you don't want to get to refractory epilepsy. I mean, obviously, but that it's harder to treat as the pathways get strengthened by ongoing seizures. So... Do you, would you recommend earlier genetic testing? So 
usually I don't do genetic testing on every single patient that walks in the door because there mm-hmm. are many benign epilepsies. So that's why we try to look at the history, the EEG and other things that are going on with that particular child. So for example, a child that has dysmorphic features or their head size is too small or their neurologic exam is not normal or they have autism, they are more likely to have a genetic problem than not. Whereas somebody who has, you know, childhood absence epilepsy, a very normal type of, or not normal, but common type of epilepsy, uh, there are genetic problems that cause absence epilepsy. But unless the child is less than four years of age, I don't worry about those. So again, uh, you don't need to do a genetic testing on every child. And again, your management may not necessarily change. So I wouldn't say you need to do it on everybody. But if you you're not getting the the epilepsy under control, absolutely, you need to define it better as much as you can. And sometimes genetic testing keeps coming back negative, even when you expand it to Mm -hmm. whole Mm -hmm. genome and whole exome testing. Uh, But you still continue to try looking for answers, because if you can define the problem, you can treat it better. Right. But it does make sense to me not to do it as a whole umbrella approach to everyone, but for the kids that are not falling into clear cut, you know, more benign categories. I'm pushing for this only because we have the testing now. Absolutely. I'm just putting and it And it does there. help in different ways. So why do we do genetic testing in the ones that we do? Mm-hmm. One thing is to find an actual problem. It also relieves a lot of burden, particularly and there are studies that show that it is the maternal burden. Mostly moms feel bad mm-hmm. because they feel they did something or they didn't do something when they were pregnant or during childbirth that caused their child to have epilepsy. And sometimes there may be literally no change in the child's management. I'm sorry. Uh, So are we still here? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, good. Yeah, so there may not be any change in the child's management, but but at least it relieves the burden of, okay, this is something was caused by X, Y, Z. And you know what the cause of the epilepsy is. Sometimes it's something that's carried by one of the parents and then other children in the family maybe carriers and they may need to know about it for their own family planning needs. And then thirdly, there now there is more precision medicine. So if exactly. there is a genetic mutation mm-hmm. uh, that we know that this particular medicine will work or this particular medicine will worsen the epilepsy, like I said a few minutes ago about Dravet syndrome, we, we can do, we can take better care of these patients. And lastly, there are now so many centers of excellence and so many clinical trials on the rare rare epilepsies like CDKL5 epilepsy or PCDF19 mm-hmm. epilepsy. And these are mostly parent driven. These are parents with uh, children with rare conditions that decided we can't have no for answers. Right. And they got together and got the funding and they are now funding research trials. So again, if you have a proper diagnosis, you can maybe then enroll the child in some of those uh, trials or at least be part of a nowadays social media community that r- does give you a lot of support. You don't feel that much alone knowing that there are other people out there with that condition. Right. I mean, and in general, there's been such an explosion of what we're learning about genetics, not just for epilepsy, but for so many things. You know, in pediatrics, this is a huge, you know, separate topic that I have to do another podcast on. Um, but I just want to point that out that you don't have to wait for refractory seizures to get genetic testing. It doesn't have to be for everybody, like upson seizures or benign focal yeah. epilepsy or any of those categories that are clear cut, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be, you don't have to wait. So back to refractory epilepsy, um, what are some other treatments besides the medications? So there are, again, several studies now over more than 15 years old that mm-hmm. have been now repeated and proven also in children that if you have, particularly in the temporal lobe, 
a lesion, which means something abnormal in the structure of the brain on the MRI, and you're failing medication, then uh, the recommended treatment is epilepsy surgery. Mm-hmm. And epilepsy surgery sounds very scary. Oh, mm-hmm. you're going to cut a part of my child's brain out? That sounds very scary. But at the same time, if there is a scar in that temporal lobe, or if there is a low-grade, what we call ganglioglioma or a tumor, or a vein, venous malformation, and you're failing medication, then using medication upon medication in such a child is actually deviation from standard of care. Mm-hmm. And I see that all the time in communities where people, you know, will continue to just treat these children with medication upon medication and not refer them to an ep- a level four epilepsy center. Because, of course, not everybody will be a candidate. And we do take every single case in its own individual uh, perspective. And we very, very uh, diligently work them up. But if you are a good candidate, then resective surgery or taking that abnormal part of the brain out will make that child uh, seizure-free at a higher percentage of success rate than medications alone. So what makes a person a good candidate? So if they have a temporal lobe uh, lesion, mm-hmm. and if that is not in the part of, the, so usually right temporal is better to have than left temporal because most people will have uh, their speech and their memory in the left side of their brain. But somebody that has a lesion that's in what we call not such an eloquent area of the brain. Mm-hmm. Thinking of it as real estate, I mean, everything in brain is important and everything in brain has a function, whether we know it or not. But obviously, just like, you know, if you drop a bomb in Manhattan versus somewhere out in, you know, some other state that is plains with no population in between, the damage is going to be very different. So if the seizure focus is coming right from the vision cortex, or motor cortex, you of course cannot resect it out. But if it is coming from a part of the brain that is something that you can live without, Mm -hmm. then it may sometimes be better to get rid of the problem. For example, we have babies with hemimegalencephaly, which is half of the brain is just very thick and very abnormal. And we have had several cases where the children were having tens and hundreds of seizures and after a surgery called hemispherectomy, mm-hmm. where the abnormal half of the brain was disconnected, mm-hmm. they became seizure-free. And they, in many cases, came either off of medication or, or only on one medication. So it can change the trajectory of the child's life pretty drastically if they are a candidate. Right. It's hard to believe that you can function with half a brain. <laughs> but these it people is. were not functioning before at all because they were continuously having seizures. So one concept, and again, it's a very uh, complex concept, but the concept of plasticity of the brain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so if you're born with a, a brain lesion then the part of the fu- the function that that part was supposed to subserve gets moved to the other side or if you were very young when you had a big stroke or a big tumor and brain damage on one side more than likely that side is not subserving important function and younger you are more likely that switch over of the function has already happened and you will not get into deficits after a surgery so we look at that as well And then there are certain specific conditions where epilepsy surgery works great. And these days, there are not just resective where you have to fully cut the skull and take the lesion out type of surgeries, but also surgeries uh, that uh, are based on laser. So they use a thin thread and use laser interstitial ablation to kind of uh, dissolve that tissue. So that is very prompt recovery and people go home in a couple of days. Uh, so that is something that does not include having a full craniectomy or oh, open wow. the skull. 
not everybody is a candidate but some are and again that is the important part of it is to get the appropriate workup to see if you are a candidate and what type of surgery it may be and again there are people that have uh, epilepsy coming from both sides uh, so there are multiple lesions like in a condition called tuberous sclerosis there are mm-hmm. multiple areas of the brain that give you seizures so you may not be necessarily a candidate for resective surgery but now we are very excited about the possibility that a neurostimulation approach can be used in these children so for years we have been doing vagus nerve stimulation but now increasingly we are using responsive neurostimulation which in a very small nutshell is putting electrodes in the part of the brain that are causing seizures and recording seizures on an ongoing basis teaching the device to recognize those seizures and deliver an impulse to stop those seizures in their tracks why would you still use the vagal nerve stimulator then is there a certain candidates for one versus the other there are there are certainly and fda approved indications for rns are not yet at uh, in the pediatric age group so uh, that is another discussion many times we have to use uh, fda non approved treatment modalities in certain subsections of our population mm-hmm. but yeah there are certainly categories where uh, the child may be too young to get the rns or there may be other contraindications as far as the family may not be able to uh, do the downloads every day and things of that nature uh, or they may just not want a device in their child's skull because some people will absolutely be averse to that so instead of not offering anything else we would still offer vagus nerve stimulation but responsive neurostimulation seems to be so far the data seems to be favoring higher percentage of control of seizures in refractory patients than vagus nerve stimulation. Now is that for focal seizures or is that also for generalized? No, the FDA indication is two two or less. So so two foci of seizures. If you have more than two then we typically don't do RNS, though there are exceptions to that. But if you have two for example if your both bilateral temporal lobes are abnormal, you there could be electrodes in both temporal lobes. and there is now increasing work being done which is not yet a mainstream type of treatment but for generalized epilepsies to stimulate the centromedian nucleus of the thalamus because all the seizures finally go through the thalamus oh wow um, and so there is something in that regard that's being developed but to answer your question no it is mostly for example if you had a, a you know epilepsy onset in uh, area of the brain that causes you to be able to speak you cannot take it out but you can put an rns in that area and stimulate the seizures to stop stimulate that part of the brain to, to reduce the seizures so you just said before that there is even a possibility of using rns for people with generalized because that's what my daughter has she has generalized seizures and she was not a candidate they told me for for rns now there is now there is definitely uh, you know work being done with centromedian nucleus uh, rns for generalized epilepsies really mm-hmm. wow and so i could see why you wouldn't use the vns because you know we had looked into the vagal nerve stimulator for her beca- because they said she wasn't a candidate for the rns and the vagal nerve stimulator is not as effective right that's why you're moving away it's correct it is not. not as effective but it is still a very good uh, good tool in our armamentorium so we will still use it in uh, some patients that are not a candidate for the rns or don't want something in their brain because it's not exactly. in the brain it's in the vagal nerve which runs in the neck right okay these are all very you know very specific things for more you know 
extreme seizures, but it's it's good to have all the information out there. Um, and so, the last treatment option is the diet. So yes, you know, special yes. dietary treatments. Uh, that also we have a ketogenic dietitian. So the, she will guide families in using either modified Atkins diet or a very strict ketogenic diet or a low glycemic index diet. And these dietary treatments can be very helpful for a section of people with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that helped my daughter. So (laughs) thankfully, you know, after all that, going through all the procedures of looking for surgery and VNS and RNS, whatever, we ended up doing low glycemic. So I want you to point out that the ketogenic diet is super restrictive. It is. It is a very, very difficult diet to follow. You cannot have any type of carbs, not even in your liquid medications or toothpaste or lotions. So it is a very strict diet. You have to weigh everything if you are a child eating by mouth. Uh, So it is very difficult to do. But in some patients, uh, it's a really good choice. Mm -hmm. And modified Atkins diet is relatively less restrictive. You don't have to get admitted in the hospital to start this diet. Whereas with ketogenic diet, we typically will admit the child to the hospital to start the diet and then discharge them and continue it outpatient. Uh, And modified Atkins diet is a little bit more doable. And for better or worse, now I go to any grocery store, I see longer and longer aisles of ketogenic formulas and almond milks and Mm -hmm. all kinds of products that are much more easily available. So I would certainly want people to be aware that it's not undoable. Right. Now, I'm very grateful to my neurologist for suggesting she's just low glycemic and it you know, made a huge difference. So Great. it's good to know that that's an option. Um, so what are some triggers of seizures? Because, you know, anytime you have a condition, there's usually triggers. And besides medication, if there's things we can do to lessen the frequency. Right. So medications and taking them as instructed on time is the most important thing. Missing even a single dose of medication is not a good idea. Happens sometimes, but it's Typically, it's best to be compliant as your doctor has advised you to take the medication. But besides that, sleep is very important. So if you are sleep deprived, the chances of you having seizures is higher. But also the quality of sleep is very important. So if you are having snoring or frequent awakenings uh, or periodic limb movement disorder where you are tossing and turning in bed all night, your sleep, you may be nine hours in bed, but you are not getting that restful sleep. And then that may cause you to have increased seizure potential during the day. Uh, Then there are some over-the-counter medications that you should be careful if your child is on seizure medicine. Always a good idea to check with your pediatrician or with your neurologist if you are going to give them any medication, including herbal medications. Mm. Some herbal medications that also should not be used if you you have potential to have seizures. And very strong antihistaminic medications that people use over-the-counter for cold and cough and flu-like symptoms can theoretically reduce... Uh, the seizure threshold or make it easier for the child to have a seizure. And being sick is a big trigger mm-hmm. for females being premenstrual or around mm-hmm. that ovulation and menstruation time can be a trigger as well. Stress is a big trigger. And now with the RNS devices in people's brains and this data that's coming out, uh, there are natural ebbs and tides in the frequency of seizures. So people get more seizures in a certain time of the day. And the VNS, uh, there is a new model called Sentiva that can be adjusted to give more stimulation during those periods oh. of time that you're having more more seizures. So wow. the VNS has gotten definitely also the vagus nerve stimulator has gotten definitely technologically more advanced than even a few years ago because it also detects a sudden increase in the heart rate that happens before a seizure happens. 
and it gives an extra impulse so that was a bit deviation but basically uh, that this data is letting us know that people have their own patterns stress does increase seizures alcohol caffeine those things can increase seizures as well for some types of epilepsies uh flashing lights in certain types of epilepsies will mm-hmm. trigger seizures but not all patients with epilepsy have that issue uh and also uh, there are patterns where certain parts times of the month you will have an ultradian type of uh, oscillation of your seizures you'll have more or less seizures and you know uh, parents always were tell us so oh, you know high moon or full moon he will have seizures wow. or this he will have. it hasn't been correlated tech- fully yet but that is something that data is being looked into as far as is there truly any correlation to any of the other factors uh, but people certainly have high seizure potential time periods and low seizure potential time periods right and you mentioned it quickly i'm just going to emphasize that for um females who are you know postmenarchal who are getting their periods that hormonal changes can be a big factor i mean i think there's even a term for catamenial epilepsy correct and that would mean that the epilepsy gets worse with the periods or there are more seizures right around the time of either ovulation menstruation or both right and that can be dealt with separately correct i think correct. So there are some used. seizure medicines like topiramate or adding acetazolamide mm-hmm. that would help right around the time of the period that can sometimes help or increasing the dose of the medicine that the person is already on right around the time of period sometimes helps but if it is really a very strong correlation sometimes i would refer them to pediatric gynecologist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to see if there any kind of regulation of those monthly cycles would lead to less number of monthly cycles per year and then that means less number of seizures. Right. So that me- again is very specific to that particular patient. Right. It means pay attention to see what your triggers are. Exactly. And seizure diaries help enormously. Mm. There are free seizure tracker apps on on the phones that everybody now carries in their hands. So keeping a track of those seizures is very important because we always if somebody asks us how is the child doing, they always think of the last 7 days in their mind. and it doesn't help when you are seeing your neurologist every 3 months we really don't right. get a clear idea of what's happening so if they can be quantified it really helps to know what's exactly going on that's actually a good segue to seizure monitors you know i i want to talk about what to do when a child has a seizure everybody should know because people often don't but before we get to that i just want you to mention any thoughts you have on seizure monitors so again it's a huge area of interest mm-hmm. and it's definitely a need because like we talked about before the biggest problem with seizures is their unpredictability parents lose their sleep thinking is this mm-hmm. the night that their child is going to have a seizure so definitely there is a big need for having reliable seizure monitors currently there is only a device called embrace which mm-hmm. is a watch uh, that is fda approved in this arena but people have looked into mattresses that sense the convulsive movements uh, as well as there are different types of seizure alert systems out there but the fda approved device or embrace is something that insurance will pay for most cases uh with your neurologist letter and prescription do we know how reliable it is because i know my daughter had a previous smartwatch and it was awful she had a seizure in the airport it was on it was hooked to my phone and it didn't go off <laughs> so, and i have heard both i have heard false alarms and i have heard also yes. that it doesn't do anything at all uh, when the seizure is actually happening so yes that's a field that's being looked into very very 
uh, aggressively by many investigators across the country and world but we are not there yet to have We're not a there yet. Right. One. right. Yeah. I mean this is it, it, we can't go into depth on this particular device the embrace device and really go into it but buyer beware. That's all I have to say. <laughs> you don't want to have false false assurance in something. Right. That that's not fully like you said there yet, but it is important. Um so what should people do if they see someone having a seizure? So if it is a type of seizure where they are not aware of where they are at all and they are starting to lose tone in their body it's very important to position them. Mm-hmm. In a younger child it's our instinct instinct to pick the child up but I would suggest that we don't do that we actually let that person be on a hard firm surface so if they're in a very soft mattress you would want them to be on the carpet for example or your hardwood floor you would try to turn their whole body and if not possible at least their face to any side it doesn't matter right or left some lateral positioning of that neck and head helps the tongue and the secretions fall to one side and people get very scared when they heard when they hear their child making that guttural sound of it's because terrifying. it is very scary yeah. uh, but that is mostly the tongue that has lost its tone and the secretions that are going in between the airway exchange uh, most ch- children with seizures will not stop breathing it's just the obstruction of the airway so positioning the child will help have less of that obstruction and then if you should start looking at any piece of time a clock a watch and time it because obviously every second seems like a minute or an hour it feels very long oh, but yeah. it's important to time the seizure and if your neurologist has given you a rescue medicine try to get ready with it see where it is and uh, of course you will help your child first and be with them and try and get ready with your rescue medicine administer it on the time that you have been told to do it and then if it is the seizure quiets down and you are kind of familiar with the situation you don't have to call 911 but if the seizure does not quiet down or they're not waking up or uh, this is the first time or you are very new to the diagnosis by all means call the emergency services that's what they are there for and they may not want the child to be taken to the er if they have come out of the seizures which mm-hmm. fortunately most seizures do stop within 3 minutes and mm-hmm. people usually come out of them pretty fairly quickly so it's very traumatizing but not necessarily life threatening in most cases uh, but people have to use their individual judgment and also if it is a seizure that they are not losing consciousness or they are not hurting themselves then somebody can take it on a video on their cell phone that helps the neurologist immensely to see the event because you may not of course you can't be doing that if you're there by yourself but if right. somebody else is there there's no imminent injury risk to the patient then that's something to do and also don't put anything in the child's mouth yes thank you <laughs> <That's very laughs> <important>. <laughs> <laughs> don't try to pry open the mouth don't There's try to miss yeah things or you know sometimes it happens when they're eating and people think they're going to choke so they want to take the food out of the child's mouth but typically you know that's not going to happen if you position them laterally on the side and the risk of you getting hurt or the child exactly. getting hurt is higher than them aspirating so right they're going to bite your finger that. off that's what's going to happen <laughs> <laughs> yes so i'm glad you said that i'm also glad you said that they don't people don't have to rush to call 911 at the very first seconds of a seizure because especially for people who have frequent seizures the ambulance is going to come they're going to be obligated or, or you know under pressure to take them somewhere that they may not need to go to so and i would make a cautionary remark that 
every seizure is different so if you feel like it's not your child's typical seizure mm-hmm. or you're new to the situation and you know you feel like you need to uh, get more assistance by all means do Oh, so you mentioned rescue medication, and and I am almost done here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two things: rescue medication, um, and I want you to get to that. And I also want to mention that you should have a medical alert badge, a bracelet on, um, of some type. Correct. If you are a person who is independently locomoting or going and traveling around, you should have a medical alert bracelet so that way, if you are unconscious in a public place and people would know what your diagnosis is if you have any allergies that is something that will be on that band as well did we lose each other no i'm still here oh, okay yeah and so that's why it's important to have that uh, medical alert bracelet so that uh, you will have all that information available when you cannot give that information as a patient right it should be where it has like a chip and everything's loaded into it not just to tell you that you have a seizure. It's, it's really important. My daughter has, she doesn't actually have a medical allergy. She has a different brand that's like runner or something or other. It's like some running ID thing, but it works just mm-hmm. as well. And we've used it. You know, mm-hmm. she's been with an aide and who did not have all her medical history and they just clicked it in and boom, they had the whole history. It was amazing. So that that's something that was, is really worth, to my mind, a subscription <laughs> to. Um, so the rescue medications. So for a number of years, we only had the rectal diazepam available, uh, which is something that does work pretty well, but it has to be given rectally, which comes with its own problems. So now we have two other chemicals available. One is nasal midazolam Mm -hmm. and the other one is nasal diazepam, which is Mm -hmm. the same as rectal medication. Mm -hmm. Because nose has such a high density of capillaries, uh, the absorption is very quick and the pharmacokinetics, the way the medicine gets into the system, is way faster than any other method of administration, except, of course, intravenous is immediate. But apart from that, intranasal is a really good way of delivery of this medicine. Mm -hmm. And so intranasal midazolam or intranasal diazepam sprays are now available. These are just little devices that you squirt the medication up the nostril. Right, just like Flonase. Always carry it with you when you have it. Always. Some some people will report a mild little nasal irritation, but you typically they are free of any major issues and pretty easy to use. Right. And again, usually they'll say, wait three minutes because you don't need to give it for every single seizure. Exactly right. Right. So we are done. And mm-hmm. I thank you so much for doing this um, and being so patient with me. And it is so incredibly informative. So I am so, so grateful to you. Thank you, thank you so, much. so much. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. It was very enjoyable experience for me as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.